Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, we're concluding a five-part series on the way shame fuels addiction. Longtime friend to Restoring the Soul, Peter Zaremba, joins Michael for this all-important conversation that shows that the foundation of shame is connected to the false self and the belief that you need to be something you are not. Now, if this particular series of podcasts have been a blessing to you, could you take a moment to let us know? You can connect with us through the Restoring the Soul website, or you can comment where you download the podcast. We always love to hear about your personal growth as a result of listening and digesting the content found here on the podcast. We find great joy in bringing it to you and are always thrilled to hear there are people out there who are different as a result of taking it all in. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. We are finishing up the series, Five Ways That Shame Fuels Addiction. Special treat today, my dear friend Peter Zaremba is in the studio again as we overlook the foothills of Denver, Colorado, and off in the distance, but not too far in the distance, we see Eeny Meeny Sushi and Old Chicago Pizza. Peter, welcome to this episode. It's great to be back. It's great to see you. So you may have heard Peter before, if you've listened to the podcast with Peter and myself on Centering Prayer, and then one, I think, with Peter and Brad Jursik on Centering Prayer as well. We're talking about shame, and here's two guys who have known each other for a long time, and and we know a lot about shame. We do. Not uh, the academic version of shame, but Peter, when you hear the word shame, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Anytime I've heard shame spoken of in terms of healing or in any kind of psychological context. It's been the uh, destructive emotion that I, I can greatest uh, have, the, have the greatest connection with. I, I know intensely what shame feels like. 
I'll share my greatest experience with shame. Uh, eight years ago, I was invited on a men's weekend. Can I stop you for a minute? Yes. All right. So, Peter, you said that you know exactly what shame feels like. Mm-hmm. And a couple of episodes back, we talked about how shame is embodied, and that's part of why it fuels addiction. So what does it feel like to you? What's that experience? It's a tightening. It's perspiration. When I experience shame, almost like uh, Tourette's, I will say something out loud. I, I will I will say a phrase a, a a unplanned involuntary phrase out loud if it's intense enough. Yeah, I have this vocal reaction like self-deprecation. Uh, no, like uh, it, just like something random like, like uh, Wiener Schnitzel. Like, no, I've n- not yet at <laughs> least. But something like you know, um, not there. It's that's ridiculous. But something like that, something that you would never hear it and understand. Oh, you're having a bout of shame, and it's about a time when you led worship, and you were over the top, and you saw a couple look at one another and roll their eyes. But that's what I was imagining in my in my head. So it's so physical that something comes out of yep. you. There are words that's yes. just tightening. Yeah. So um, I'm an Enneagram two with a three wing. You're an Enneagram three with a two wing. Mm-hmm. And shame is what drives threes. So uh, you had talked about sharing an incident for you a couple of years ago when you really felt this. Yeah. So I'd, I'd carried with me. Uh, I, I got to I was invited actually by you on a weekend where you had a chance to um do some healing work in the area of shame, and it involved uh, sharing my greatest shame, which was a very short story, sexual story that wouldn't be appropriate to share here, uh, but it happened when I was 21 years old, and it happened over the course of about 60 seconds, but it was, you know, me, I, I saw myself at my shameful worst. I, I heard one time a, one of my uh, professors uh, when I was getting a degree in psychology, talked about sh- the idea of shame being uh, you take a Polaroid picture of yourself at your absolute worst, and then you take a, uh, um, a Sharpie and you write uh, a caption underneath it that is you at your worst, and you carry this around with you. And I think you've used the term in the past, ace in the hole, where your ace in the hole is that thing that can tap you on the shoulder and annihilate you, disqualifies you for a relationship with another human being disqualifies you from a relationship with God or God's desire to love you or, you know, just, it's completely irrational. It was an ace in the hole. And I, uh, got to share that story with, uh, like five strangers, you know, uh, none of them ran away and none of them got the state police on speed dial. And I, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but like these were five men in a group. Yeah. They weren't just people you, oh, yeah, you no. randomly walk up no, no, to. No, no, these, yeah, they, no. These strangers. were five men who were on the weekend with me who, who I'd never known before the weekend. And we, we all took a, you know, we, you make uh, agreements that we're going to be confidential, but that we're going to be completely honest. And I knew I was safe and I'd never share, shared it. And all I can say was having had the experience of getting it out, bringing light into that dark place was absolutely the most life changing. What le- shortly after that, I'd say an hour after that, I had an experience that I'm still trying to understand what happened. My life has never been the same. Some, something was broken that day in a good way. Some, something was released and a healing started where the, I can just say like the last eight years of my life have been the most wonderful journey, but I, 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 we couldn't have, I couldn't have decided to get on that path apart from that healing and that shame place for me. 
We talked about in earlier episodes of these five ways shame fuels addiction, that shame creates distance and that distance uh, takes us out of relationship. Mm. And we defined addiction as an unhealthy mood altering relationship with mm. a substance, person or behavior. So here you are with five strangers prior to that weekend and you're sharing this stuff. And it sounds like uh, where there was absolute distance of not knowing each other, that there was there was intense connection, intimacy, and proximity with what was so shameful. Is that the healing agent? There's something about shame you can't heal on your own. And so, you know, like, you know, I've heard the phrase in terms of men's transformational communities, men healing men through a power greater than ourselves. But I don't know if I ever could have found it just from asking God for healing. And it had to come from another human being loving me and simply by hearing it not running away, uh, not condemning me, just hearing it and, and honoring it. There's something about shame and the healing of it that requires relationship and requires the very thing that shame uh, prohibits you from experiencing, which is vulnerability, nakedness. Um, yeah. You alluded to, uh, you know, the, the, the voice of shame within mm-hmm. you. And one of the things in trauma work that I do with people, and this is, this is common with therapists that are working with trauma, is kind of asking people to identify where a strong sensation is in their body, mm-hmm. uh, like that tightness in their chest. And, and um, you know, what color is it? What texture is it? Sometimes they'll say, what, what season or month of the year would it be? And to have people access more of their right brain and try to describe that. And then I, I, I'll often say, if there was a cartoon bubble or a Sunday Funnies call out, you know, what would be in that bubble? I will share this in a minute, and maybe we should count to three and talk at the same time. But after I share, what is the voice for you? And I think for me, it's changed. And this might be thematic of being a two on the Enneagram. I'm surprised by I'm getting a little emotional talking about this. But the voice that's been there all along is nobody wants you. Mm. And therefore, as a two, I have to help. I have to give. You're here in Colorado for a day or two. We're hanging out. You're doing some stuff with family. And the theme for me, and this is, of course, off the rails now. We hadn't planned on talking about this, but this is what makes it so good. The theme for me is I'm tired. I'm not at my best. I'm in kind of a tired season. The schedule we had planned is off. And there's something in me ever so subtly being like, if I'm not a good host, and if we're not going fishing like we had planned, uh, and if I'm having technical problems with the, uh, with the computer, you know, surely you must be irritated and think I'm a schmuck. But internally, there's a voice much stronger than the word schmuck. I know that's not true, but it just comes up like mm. a reflex. So that voice of um, nobody wants me. Mm. And, and, here, and here's the what makes it so hideous is that and I know you know this in your head, but like because we don't get to see each other often. Uh, I'm just enjoying like running around today and like picking up your daughter and having lunch. And uh, it's just like I. I couldn't be happier just doing what we're doing and throwing our plans out the window. And I get that, you know, for me as an Enneagram three, my program for happiness is my false program for happiness that never works and always backfires is I will get, you will love me. Like you will love me, which if you have a sales career, there's, it's probably, you know, that's, <laughs> that's good fuel. It's not, but, but so anytime, and it's my most shameful events are when I can see in, when I can read in people's facial expressions and their body language that uh, the, 
that I am unlovable or that they've rejected me or, uh, you know, that, that, that they find me repelling. And, and that has the power to absolutely, and you just throw me into shame. Does that for you play out typically when there's something that you've done or when there's something you don't? Here's, here's a great example, right? So I'm a part of a couple of different men's groups. So I'm oftentimes speaking in front of a group of men and I'm reading everybody's body language. And what I'll do is I'll find the one person in the room with their arms folded with like a kind of look on their face like, who is this guy, right? And now my entire goal is not to communicate clearly to the whole group. It's to get that guy to like me. And if I can't, I feel shame. But it's it just has such power to take me over. And and I'm not even aware of it uh, until afterward. And I can look at that and, and, and you know, kind of roll my eyes and, and just see myself do it. You know, step outside and see myself doing it again. I have done that before. But instead of trying to perform, it's that I, I literally go into a caretaking or giving mode where um, if I can't make a joke or something, I'll try to avoid that person's displeasure and then I'll start to try to compensate by like working another part of the room and then get them to compensate. It's really fascinating how, especially we're doing this off the cuff now, but in speaking environments like that, it just plays out. Sure. And I think we've both had moments where that's not happened, where we're in the zone where our heart is free, where we're really grounded, and it's just so different. And I find that I could give the exact same message, but it comes out a different way. That's true. Yeah, no, in the town I live, so for me, it's totally general. As a town I live in, uh, there's somebody at the post office that that I always try and get to smile. And, and, and if they, and I, the more I try, this guy just like gets more angry and irritated. So you may be a, a two with a three wing. <laughs> I don't, true. I don't know. It could be. I think I've been in that post office and I would try to get that guy smiling too. So here's what, so here's the funny thing. Here's, here's the crazy thing about that story I told before. One of the byproducts of shame is that it robs us of intimacy and robs us of relationship is that as healing has taken place in that ace in the whole shame story, I've used it over the past eight years for guys you know, like on the art on the restoring the soul weekend where sometimes there's a guy in our soul group and he's just filled with self-loathing and self-hatred and we're working through it. And I'll walk up to him afterward and I'll share that story to say, to somehow say, look, I just want you to know, you know, this, this is where I was in my life. This is the kind of thing I carried around. You know, this was the thing that nobody could ever discover about me. So the irony is the very thing that closed me off, an annihilated relationship now becomes this tool hmm. to bring about connection, reassurance, hope, and relationship. Truly a gift. Yeah. It may not feel that way in yeah. the moment. It didn't feel that way as you were uttering those words at the weekend for the first time. But it, you know, the, the, the curse becomes a gift. The wound becomes the opportunity to flow into others. So this topic, uh, we did a long introduction, is um, that one of the ways that shame fuels addiction is that it gives marching orders to the false self. Mm. Mm. And so there's a connection between shame telling us that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, that we're inadequate, that nobody could love us as we are, that we can't get our needs met by depending on others, which was the theme of the last episode. And therefore, I have to be somebody other than who I am. I have to become bigger and more than I am, or I have to be less by dialing down, by denying parts of my personality. 
So how that fuels addiction is that our deepest longing is to be known and to be loved for who we really are. If anybody wonders where in Scripture did you get that, Psalm 139. Read it in every translation you can. That's the gospel before the birth of Jesus, that God knows us completely and thoroughly, that he sees every shortcoming, flaw, foible. Yeah, look at, look at, look at the opening chapters of John when Nathaniel meets Jesus, and Jesus says, here's a true Israelite, and, there's, and Jesus doesn't throw out a lot of compliments, but s- somehow Nathaniel knew he was known at that moment, that he'd been, I, before you came here, I saw you under the fig tree, or I forget, yeah. forgive me, whatever, the, um, I don't remember the exact, but this, no, and he, and he immediately had, they have this, intense intimacy moment, but it's all about because he knew that he'd been seen in the core of who he was. Right. And and we could um, sentimentalize that and so many other stories that, you know, Jesus, he was fully God and fully man, so that was his God side, and he's omniscient, and he knew everything. And I choose to believe through all of those stories in the Gospels that Jesus wasn't calling on his superpowers. He was calling on his fulfilled humanity, where... Um, he was perceptive. He was attentive. He was dialed in. He could read the room. He mm-hmm. saw Nathaniel, and he knew him because, yes, he created him, but he knew him because he could be present to what, what was inside of him and what his true self and true soul was. So you've done a lot of work around the false self, both in terms of study and courses you've taken and a lot of your own personal work. You use some different language for the false self, and there's a couple of key things that we talked about even before this. Um, what is the false self? Let's bat that around, and then let's talk about what the false self isn't. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll start with the second half of the, the false self is not your bad self. In other words, your false self is not your deceptive self, right? There's a part, there is a part of me that, uh, um, that I'm tempted to deny, hide, and repress. And that's really my, that's my shadow side. That's, uh, my false self is not my shadow side. My false self is simply, here's a better word for some people. It's my constructed self. It's, it's the self that I build, that I engineer, either consciously or unconsciously. I want, in other words, when I meet you, I want you to have a certain opinion of me. It's that person that I want you to have an opinion of that's my constructed self. I'm confident. I'm knowledgeable. I'm uh, whatever for whatever it is, and it's different for everybody. You're an achiever. I'm a helper. Yeah, whatever, right? So, like, like for instance, like in my profession, we're in sales and technical sales. And when I first sit down with a potential customer, I will try and communicate. You know, look, our, uh, that we're competent, that we have experience, that we will help you, that we're professional, right? I might walk in there feeling incredibly inadequate with, you know, like in other words, so as long as I'm aware, in other words, the false self isn't something we get rid of. It's with us our whole life, but it's about awareness, right? So I'm not deceiving this guy because everything I just said has some truth to it and some weight to it. It's not the full picture either, right? I mean, we make mistakes. Uh, you know, our, our companies are, are fantastic that we represent, but there's the, we have problems, right? Like anybody else, and so um, there's a fuller picture to it. And and the false self is, uh, it's the false. We get in trouble with the false self when we're unaware of it. And most people, unfortunately, like myself, for 47 years, marched through life, you know, wearing masks trying to give an image and it's and so you have potential to relate to people not in authenticity right not not with the, uh, some level of transparency and enemy but it's a mask to a mask i'm my mask relating to your mask 
So that's the, that's the potential destructive power when we're, we're just unaware, when we're ignorant of what's the false self, what's the constructed self, what does it look like in my life? So a question that popped up in my mind, and I've thought about this, I've talked about this, I have an opinion, but I want to hear your opinion, because I think many years ago I would talk about the false self um, as what uh, Brennan Manning called the imposter mm. in his book, Abba's Child. Uh, John Eldridge in his book, Wild of Heart and others has called this the poser. Carl Jung, I think, is the first person to suggest this term false self, which, of course, implies even a true self. Uh, is the false self something that we are to repent of or that we can repent of? Yeah. I, and so I'd be very clear here saying that the, I don't believe the false self has a moral value. Now, the deceptive self does. So if I'm an addict and I'm lying to you about my true behavior, my true whereabouts, my true, that's the shadow side of me that I'm, that where I'm hiding, repressing or denying truth. And that requires work. You want to call it repentance? I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, or, you know, soul work, shadow work. Some call it shadow boxing. That's where you and I get together and we get real and I, you know, can, can confess and own things in my life. But the false self is about awareness. It's not about repentance. It's about being aware. I'm always, you know, for instance, um, uh, you know, I can think of people in my life and I got, you know, for myself, I can give examples for myself, but usually there's, there's an image of ourself that we want others to believe. In my case, getting you to laugh and getting you to like me and to, to be seen as somebody who's trustworthy and lovable. That's my program for happiness. And so I give you the power. In other words, you have power. And my false self is out to get you to give me something back. So it's about awareness. So the false self gives us power and it's out to achieve something. Here's my working definition of the false self right now. And that is a relational coping strategy that sabotages the very thing that I want and that I was created for, which is to be known and loved. Yeah, I love that. And it is, yeah, it's the illusion. You know, I think it was Merton. I'm going to, I'm going to botch this, but Merton talks, talks about the false self quite a bit. And he says, he's speaking as a, as a mystic, but he says, God doesn't know the false self. And that's far too uh, much anonymity for, you know, for anyone. <laughs> and um, so uh, the false self isn't something that we lose as we get mature. It just morphs over time. And, you know, to the day we die, we will have a false self. And I think we get friends with it and we use it with responsibility and we use it with great self-awareness and, and, and great self-awareness of how shame can empower uh, the false self and how it can bury the true motive of the false self. Yeah, for me, this idea of befriending it has become a big idea. And that doesn't mean resignation like I go, oh, well, that's just a part of me. But to say, oh, yeah, it's you again, and to um, make friends with it in the sense that I can accept it, to not be judgmental about it, or at least most of the time, that's my goal, uh, to, to be able to see it as that it's not the true me, because mm. this brings up the other part, what is the true self? Mm. Yeah. And before I get there, I would say the key word for growth in the false self is exposure. So when you get exposed... When my false self clearly gets exposed, uh, like recently, I've been very grateful for it because I can, I could just live in deception. And, and so learning how to 
allow and embrace. And then like what we're doing right now, owning it, you know, talking about it, dialoguing about it. So uh, it's destructive power is lessened the more you're aware of it and the more you can self-expose. Yeah. Which is which is biblically the idea of humility, yeah. right? Humility is not beating yourself up or I'm less than, which sounds like it's actually shame, but it's actually saying, I can trust you with me. God, I can trust you with me. Back yeah. to yeah. Merton, that humility is being precisely the person you are at any given time. Love that. Yeah, so the true self is who you are in God. The It, it is... Uh, what the Buddhists would call the face you had before you were born. And or so, as the Enneagram speak of uh, the person you were before the world told you who you had to be. Oh, I love that. I have never Ooh, heard that. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's, that's good. good. That's but, a quick impression of Ted Baxter from the Mary Tyler Moore Show, played by Ted Knight. So, Moment so, of silence. So the uh, the true self, in, uh, Roar had a great one-liner on it. He simply said the true self um, was something you never earned and something you can never lose. And so it's this notion of your deepest, truest identity, that you came from love, you're moment by moment sustained in love, and that someday you will return to love, and that that is your core, truest identity, apart from anything the false self is out trying to, trying to sell and, and trying to accomplish. Let me give the biblical image of the inmost being, mm-hmm. and I know there's different theories about this, um, but I like to think of that true self as the core of the core or the heart of hearts of a person. Psalm 139, which I've been spending a lot of time in, verse 13, I knit you together in your mother's womb and created your inmost being. But now listen to just a a couple of other scriptures in context. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Uh, Jesus in John 7 as he calls people to himself, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and streams of living water will flow from where? From your inmost being. Then in Philippians 3, Paul's praying, and he says, my prayer is that you'd be rooted and established in love in your inmost being. It's that sense of all of this would be from your deepest self, from the core of who you are, from that true part of you that you can't earn and you can't lose the part of you that did exist and does exist and will exist despite who the world tells you that you have to be. Well said. Let's talk about making the shift. We talked about the false self. We talked about the true self. We talked about shame. And let's kind of tie this together, how this fuels addiction. Mm. Um, One point that's kind of obvious, but maybe so obvious that it would be missed is that shame in and of itself can be an addiction. So earlier when we were having a conversation, I shared some stuff with you, felt very loved, felt very embraced. You know, you thank me for sharing. And then afterwards, there's this hamster wheel in my head of compulsive thoughts. Um, And there's a lot of different things I can do to address that, like saying, okay, I accept even this non-judgmentally, and then it can lose its power. But... Shame is an addiction where if we keep coming back to this lie or this core belief that I'm unworthy, bad, don't measure up, inadequate, etc., it always gives me a false hope that I can be better, that I can do better. So from the introduction of shame in the the, the scriptural story in Genesis 3, it really becomes an addiction. And then the other thing that becomes an addiction is the false self. So I want to talk a little bit about how 
this is not something we can just stop. And mm-hmm. that's why I asked about repentance. Uh, repentance is I can begin to turn the ship. I can set my coordinates on a different direction. In other words, I can reorient my life. I can do life differently. But I can't just say, okay, I'm going to be my true self today and not be my false self. It is an addiction. How have you experienced this? Yeah, so again, Enneagram 3, I will let you see me after I've been able to clean up my act. Once I get my act together, then I'm, then I'm ready for the intimacy. Then I'm ready for you to know everything about me, and which never happens. And so I think um, what I'm beginning to glimpse is that there's a way to live life where I let you see me as I'm very much in my shame, still trapped by my shame, and that somehow in the midst of that, it's lessened. And then the the addiction, the compulsive thinking, the compulsive behavior, the compulsive emotions lose their power as I'm connected, more connected, as I'm more known. So the the addiction, where it used to be the the core issue, I got to fix this, and then once I fix it, now I'm worthy and ready for friendship. Once I allow true friendship and you let you to see me, I'm caught in this addictive pattern. All of a sudden, a shift takes place where the addiction loses its, its previous power because it's, the issue is no longer the behavior or the thought or the emotion. It's now connection and relationship. Right. It's, yeah, it's subtle. It is subtle, but there is a shift that all of a sudden changes everything. And one of the beautiful things I think that you, I learned from you on one of our weekends on one of the restoring the soul intensives was there was a question about a, a, a certain behavior and a certain lifestyle. And, you know, how do we handle this as a ministry? And you said, and you were, you were adamant and you were immediate. You said, we are about connection, connection with others and connection with God. And that is the path. And what happens to the behavior of the lifestyle is that will flow out of connection with God and connection with, with others. And I just, that was life-changing for me. So let's loop it back around one more time. How does shame fuel the false self, and how does that fuel addiction? That our deepest desire is to be known and loved. The moment we put on the clothing, if you will, and button it up or zip it up of the false self, then we can't actually be loved for who we actually are. Because you you said the quote, that, you know, God doesn't know the false self. The false self is an illusion, and it's only our true self that can be loved, right? And if that's true, the minute I dedicate myself in this relational coping strategy by which I sabotage what I most want, the minute I do that, I set myself up for emptiness. There's a vacuum there. There's this void by virtue of trying to get that need met on my own. Because I'm trying to earn it. I'm trying to perform it. I'm trying to achieve that. For me as a two, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to give. And that doesn't require trust. It doesn't require reciprocity. It doesn't require receiving. It's really all about what I'm doing as a transaction to get something back. And so with that pressure of the transaction of I've got to pull this off, and with the emptiness of if I do pull it off, I'm not really being loved for who I really am and known for who I am. I'm loved for this this guy that's not really me, it sets me up for addiction. There's emptiness and there's pressure. And that becomes the fuel for I've got to find a person. I've got to find a behavior like as an Enneagram 2. What if my addiction 
was helping and giving? And what if all the the vice or unhealthy sides of our Enneagram numbers were, in fact, relational addictions? So that is how shame fuels addiction by these marching orders for our false self. Go ahead and comment. It looks like you've got a thought. Beautifully said. And, you know, Cynthia Bergeault's written uh, in her book, Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, she dedicates a chapter to something called uh, the welcoming prayer. And um, she shows the cycle uh, driven by, you know, um, our program for happiness. And then we have this constructed or false self that goes out trying to run the program for happiness and that when it fails, right after its failure, before we then just double down and try even harder to live out of that false self and that false program for happiness, there's a moment right after it fails when we have a chance for change. We have a chance where we are expo- it's exposed. And it's in that moment where if we're able to use that exposure with another to process and to be transparent where we actually get freed from that vicious cycle that never works, right? It's pre-wired to fail. And where the failure of that false program and, and the shame of it, rather than that shame driving us to break relationship, if we actually reach out and engage in relationship where there's transparency, vulnerability, and, and just bring words to it, something gets put back together in us and we're somehow freed. It's never an all or nothing thing. It's never a once for all thing, but that's the moment right after it fails. Well, and you said it was in the chapter on the welcoming prayer. And that's this idea that we may not pick up the phone and call and tell someone about what we're feeling about shame or turn to our friend, spouse, coworker, minister, etc. But the welcoming prayer is stopping in our tracks, acknowledging that unpleasant, uh, distressing feeling, emotion, experience. And then by stopping, I kind of have this picture in my mind of kind of looking up to heaven and saying, okay, I'm going to sit with you, God, and this sensation, experience, feeling. And we did this for 10 minutes before we turned on the microphones uh, of just 10 minutes of silence. And because I had a lot of stress happening kind of in my chest, I kind of did a welcoming prayer of just saying, okay, here it is. I'm going to be with this. I'm going to sit with it. It doesn't need to go away. I don't need to have some warm, fuzzy sensation. And it was in that place where I met God and God met me with what is instead of what should be or what could be. Yeah, Yeah, the the, the lie is shame will annihilate me. And so uh, the truth is I can hold and welcome my shame. I, I, it, it, that it will not align, and I can see through it, and I can begin to to use that shame to build intimacy and relationship. That's the the lie is it will annihilate me if I ever allow myself to feel it. So that's back to that physiological. There's there's virtually nothing outside of shame, including a panic attack, and I've mm-hmm. had those, and I've had flashbacks, and I've had suicidal depression and mood swings with all my varying mental illness issues over the years. To know oh, this is an embodied experience. And when that flood starts to happen physiologically on an embodied level, not that it's going to feel good, but to go, oh, I know what this is. This is not something that can annihilate me. This is this physical embodied experience. And then the other thing that's so disarming and overwhelming is the lie that's attached to it, right? So for you, it will annihilate me because I'm not loved. Hmm. Or for me, I am not wanted. 
or for a one, I am not good enough. We won't go through all of the Enneagram numbers, but it's that lie in the embodiment. You know, and the lie is always somehow you are unworthy. Somehow I am not enough. You're not unworthy. I'm not unworthy. Back to Psalm 139. God looks at our deepest, true self, that inmost being, and he lays his hand upon us, which is a nice religious term. But uh, if you think of, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, the Andy Griffith show where, you know, Andy and Opie are walking along at the beginning. And it's boop, boop, boop. I won't try to whistle it, but uh, dad's got his fishing pole and Opie's kind of innocent and they're walking down this country road. That's a picture of God laying his hand upon us. Mm. It's not just this kind of religious blessing. It's he's wrapping his arm around us. He's saying, hey, come here, come here, when he sees the deepest part of us. And so the lie is, I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate. Now, if I walk out in the parking lot and there's an F-18 that has landed, or a Black Hawk helicopter, I am inadequate to fly that. I don't have the training. If somebody needs me to do brain surgery, I am inadequate. But for who I am in any given moment and what I am called to do with my inner self, I am worthy, I am adequate, I am enough. And sometimes we have to press into the shame uh, that's there because of our trauma, our abandonment, etc., even to be able to start to feel like that's true that we are enough and to access that true self. I like that. I think a practical thing is for me is to see when I can, when I, when I had a shame attack to be able to step out of it at some point, step out of it, observe myself and then ask what, what's the idol that that shame exposed for me? What is What is the thing that's so important that that shame has the power to that, that, shaming event had the, uh, the details of it had the power to annihilate and to rob me of, and what is it? What is it? What is it that's so important? I shared earlier that story of, I am, I was, uh, you know, years and years ago, I was on staff at a church and I used to lead worship and, and I had this moment where I saw some people's reaction to something and, you know, because I was kind of performing and, and I can't tell you like the intensity, like it's like 35 years later and uh, not 35, I'm 56, but it's like 20, it's 30 years later. And, um, I, I still, that event, if I think about it, you know, like I said, perspiration, I get tight, I say something out loud. So to begin to unpack that and to say that, you know, where they saw me as something that was, you know, ridiculous or foolish or false or, you know, unattractive, whatever it was. But that's when I can get to that place where I'm stepped outside of it. And I can begin to process what is it that on the deepest level, I'm, I, I want something and I'm not getting it. Um, wow. So many different thoughts from this conversation, um, including what you just shared about the going back so far. I mean, I, I have moments and memories that are traumatic from early childhood shame, which no longer have that kind of power over me. But I can think back to, oh, an incident about a year ago where I was speaking somewhere and it wasn't actually a mistake that I made. It was actually me, what I call soaring. It was me in the zone. It was me free. And sometimes now I'll feel shame over really living and operating from my heart. Like, Oh no, I was too vulnerable. I was too free. I was too, if you will, naked and unashamed. And then this panic can wash over me. But I do have moments and memories of, 
uh, of things that are still very much embodied. So how do we overcome all this? Well, here's the 30-second summary of how you deal with shame, which fuels addiction. You live loved. A year ago, a little less than, my son asked me to get a tattoo. He has multiple tattoos. And uh, I said, I don't think there's anything that I really want to ink onto my body permanently. You know, it's not the American flag. It's not even John 3.16. Um, and I just said, kind of in a prayer, kind of not. God, you know, if there's something that I would want, you know, help me to identify that, because I feel like there's something there. And uh, within about a week, I, I got it. And so my son was home from Washington, and I said, Let, let's go get the tattoo. And so it's it's probably two and a half inches, a small line of text on my left hand and a small line of text on my right hand. And I'm right-handed, so I'll start with what's on my just above my wrist on my left hand. Since I'm right-handed, my left hand represents my vulnerability, the things I might be ashamed of, my weaknesses, my limitations. And so it says simply, be loved, be loved. My fuel, my secret sauce uh, if Second Corinthians 12 is true, where Paul's talking about his weaknesses, and he says, in my weakness, I am strong. Most of us think that it says, in my weakness, God is strong, but Paul's actually saying, in my weakness, I'm strong. Then my left hand is actually more powerful than my right hand, mm-hmm. even though I'm right-handed. And my work, my practice, my faith, the need to trust is to be loved. Which, by the way, if you take away that space, is the word beloved – which First uh, John says, you know, we are beloved of God. We're like little children. All throughout uh, the Psalms, you know, that, that term is there. On my right hand, where that is my strength, that is my adequacy, uh, that is the representing on a, a kind of physical, neurological level, my best self, if you will. It says, be still, be still. And so some will struggle with this oversimplification of the gospel, but here's the gospel on two tattoos, one on each wrist, be loved and be still. Now, why is that Christian? Because Jesus is God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God's glory. Um, He is God incarnate. And so who am I loved by? I'm loved by the God that looks like Jesus. I am loved by the God that put on skin and came among us and who died on the cross and who's resurrected and alive today and here, right here. I am to be loved by him, even in all of this yucky stuff that's been coming up today. I am to be still in the places where I would get energized, fueled up, another manic set of ideas, starting a new project, uh, dreaming about five books before I finish the one I'm writing, believing that if I had a certain level of success and accomplishment that then I'd be more lovable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at the end of the day, how do we overcome addiction? Well, very complicated question. It really is about relationship because it's in relationship that we heal, and it's about regulation. And that is this stillness, this getting grounded, getting calm, getting centered, literally into a place where we can be loved. We've had conversations with people, men that we mentor, disciple, hang out with, minister to, work with, etc. You know, how can I grow my relationship with God? And the question is always, what book should I read? What prayer practice should I do? What conference should I go to? Be still. Tomorrow, 
sit quiet for five minutes in God's presence. There's nothing harder to do, but if you want to overcome an addiction or a compulsion, be loved in the places where you believe you're unlovable, and be still in the places where you think, man, this is why I am lovable. Now, of course, there's clinical realities, and uh, if you haven't heard of the book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R is his first name, M-A-T-E is his last name. Um, He's a Canadian physician who has written this profound book on the spirituality and the neurobiology of addiction that really supports a lot of what we've been talking about. Peter, it is always good to be with you in the Restoring the Soul studio face-to-face, and uh, I'm glad for this talk today. So thanks for your insight, and um, thanks for being a part of my life and being a dear friend that has helped me to live loved and known. Well, thank you, and, and thanks for our friendship, Michael. And thank you for being someone in my life who's taught me what intimacy and vulnerability and uh, who's invited me on a path to, to heal some of the shame wounds. I'm really grateful, really grateful for you. Thank you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.